trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, alumni, and higher education. You know, we live in a dangerous world. I don't have to tell all of you that. Russia has invaded Ukraine, igniting the largest war in Europe in decades and presenting the U.S. with its biggest test since World War II. My guest today is an expert in the areas of homeland and national security. Larry Pfeiffer is the director of Mason's Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence Policy and International Security, which examines the interplay of intelligence in the U.S., national security, and is part of Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government. Larry Pfeiffer's distinguished 32-year career in the U.S. intelligence community included stints as chief of staff to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency and director of the White House Situation Room under President Barack Obama, where he led round-the-clock operations and the Intelligence Center. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the National Security Staff Medallion and two Central Intelligence Agency Director Awards. Larry Pfeiffer, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and thanks for hosting our center at the Shar School there. We're really thrilled to be there and enjoying every moment of time we've spent there. Well, look, I don't have to tell you, you all serve a valuable service, not just to the community, but to our students at Mason. It's a really, really big deal for them to be able to hear from experts, for them to be able to hear from people who are literally on the cutting edge of many of the issues affecting defense and intelligence and homeland security. And so I am just excited to have a resource like that, especially in times like this, right? Right. In times where there's just so much misinformation out there, it's just great to have a framework and an organization like this on campus. Yeah, Mason is the only university in the United States that has a former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and and National Security Agency in General Hayden on board as a faculty member. We have Michael Morell on board, another former deputy director, acting director of CIA, Andrew McCabe, former acting and deputy director of the FBI, as well as a handful of other great experts who are teaching courses in intelligence alongside the great academic experts that we have over the Shar School. We've been thrilled to use the contacts and the networks we have to invite and bring into the university other experts. We've had senators and congressmen and women. We've had members of the executive branch. We have had uh, people from some of the prominent think tanks around town. Uh, we even have a little fun every now and again. We brought Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin in here when they were doing the TV show Homeland, and we had an event that focused on the show. And Man, I wish I could have been there for that. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we're going to try to do some fun stuff in the future like that, so we'll make sure you're there for yes. those. Yes, Please let me know. You know, as a student, I can't begin to tell you how fabulous it is. And you will think back when you were a student, right? Right. To be able to sit at the feet 
of people like that and have them teach you and to learn about the nation's history and to learn about what happened in the intelligence community and to do all of that, to learn all of that from the mouths of individuals as influential as those. It just speaks volumes yeah, of what we've set, been able to put in place here at Mason. Yeah, so, that does set aside the Shar School from some of the competitors around town. Oh, without the number, question. The number of practitioners we have on the faculty who can speak from the experience, and that's just invaluable to the students we have. Without question. You learn by doing, and so we learn best from the people who've done it. So speaking of which, <laughs> I'd like to start off with something that you said once, and that is that democracy is a small flame that needs to be constantly cared for and tended to in order that the flame might not go out. Given the rise in autocracies today, given the fact that you literally see democracies being openly challenged, and even in this country, people openly asking the question whether an autocracy is better for America than a democracy. Right. I just want you to talk a little bit about what you mean by that sure. and give me your thoughts on it. You know, a lot of people grow up in this country and they take it for granted. And when you're in a business like I was in for 32 years and you travel the world or you study other countries' governments and development, you really can grow to appreciate how precious our freedoms and our values are here in this country. You also grow to realize how quickly those values can be subverted and those freedoms suppressed. I've seen it happen in country over and over again, countries that had robust democracies and then now live under autocracy and dictatorship. God help us. We're seeing it in Ukraine every day on the news, and it's frightful, but Ukraine shouldn't be all we're looking at. You look at countries like Syria, you look at countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, where we spend a lot of time where people just struggle to get those freedoms that we just take for granted. So folks here in America need to understand that democracy isn't a roaring fire. It, it is an ember. It is a small flame that needs to be constantly kindled in order to continue the great country we have. So as you take a look at what's been happening globally and you start to focus in here on the U.S., what are you seeing from politicians in the U.S. that perhaps you've seen in autocratic countries sure. or those with failing democracies that tell you that democracy here is a struggling ember? So if you look at the last few election cycles we've gone through, our country, our democracy, our democratic practices have been attacked from, first, attacked from abroad. We have proof that the Russians in 2016 and again in 2020 were actively supporting one candidate. They were actively working to sow, well, not to sow division, but to actually uh, exacerbate divisions that actually already exist in our culture, make things worse, create chaos. When you create chaos, it feeds on people's fears. When people have fear, they seek order they, and they seek law and order. Mm -hmm. And that can result in people wanting to set aside some of the values and freedoms we have in order to get that order. Unfortunately, in this country, you have people who have decided that they want to take advantage of those fears and those divisions themselves in order to obtain power and stay in power. We saw that happen with the last election. You also see some media who are looking for advertising dollars, and you get advertising dollars by getting clicks or by getting people to tune into your show. And so what better way to get attention than to, again, feed on those fears, to feed on that physiological response? General Hayden, in fact, from 2016 to 2020, we heard the word collusion a lot, mm -hmm. you know, suggesting that there was some active plotting 
going on between elements of Russia and elements here in the United States. And he said, there may be some collusion, maybe somewhere. He said, but the thing we need to worry more about is convergence. And that's where you have a convergence of activities for, in some cases, different reasons. You have the Russians or and other countries now, China, Iran, Korea, trying to subvert our democracy, trying to divert our attention away from them and more towards our own internal problems, feeding information to our country. You then have fringe right wing and, you know, some fringe left wing media sources who are feeding information in for different reasons, again, to get the clicks, to get the advertising. Maybe, maybe they do want to sow disorder. Then you then have less radical media sources begin to pick up on some of those stories and start to broadcast them on more mainstream media. And so you'll see that on Fox News. And, you know, sometimes you'll see it on MSNBC or some of the other uh, media sources as well. And it just it's just a convergence that feeds on itself and continues this, this negativity. Well, let me take off on something that you said there. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about election meddling, collusion, and the like. And this is squarely focused at Russia, and that is the topic of today. We have Ukrainian and Russian students on our campus, and they are dealing with the aftermath of this war. This was not a single event. This is a culmination of events that were basically happening in real time back when you were in the Situation Room, right? It goes all the way back to when Russia went into Georgia Mm -hmm. and then Crimea, right? That was under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And when response from those things were not enough to stop the escalation. It continued to escalate, right? Because then he right. went in and he took Crimea. Yeah, there's a and there. then we didn't respond as well as we could have to that. And then they meddled in the election. Right. And we didn't respond. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, there's an old Russian saying that think of Russia as a soldier. This is going this is to be a little disturbing, but you think of Russia as a soldier with a bayonet, and he's going to stick that bayonet in. And if it's soft, he's going to just keep pushing. But if he hits steel, he's going to stop and pull back. Vladimir Putin is clearly someone who follows that idea. He has continued to push and continued to push. And when the response has been soft, he sees that as an invitation to continue. And so, you you know, at some point he has to hit steel. And when he hits steels, he's going to respect that and he would back off. But Vladimir Putin is kind of a creation of his own circumstances. This is an individual who was a KGB officer. He was uh, risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He was serving in eastern Germany, I believe, when Mm -hmm. the wall fell. And he saw his world collapse and he saw everything he believed in going away. And he also saw that potentially his power source and his future power was going to dissipate under a more democratic Russia. And so he and colleagues of his, when they returned to Russia, they weren't going to stand for that. And they worked and it didn't take him very long before he got himself in a position where he, in essence, overthrew Boris Yeltsin and then began to chip away at the democratic reforms that had taken place in that country. He made sure that he and his cohort were able to enrich themselves off the back of the people of Russia. He was able to ensure that the people with money who could perhaps negatively affect him had the protection they needed to continue to do what the what they wanted to do. And you're right, he just has been slowly but surely working to try to rebuild this empire, Be you know, call it a Soviet empire or call it a, a czarist empire. He believes there's a Russia abroad that needs to be under the control of the Russian government, either direct control or indirect control. And you're right, he saw, I think, uh, weak 
weakness in response and felt that now was the time to make this big push into Ukraine. I think what we're seeing is there were some serious miscalculations. He had isolated himself quite a bit. He has been in power so long that he began to believe, I think, that he was the expert on everything. People surrounding him were not willing to go against what he wanted mm -hmm. uh, because they saw people who did go against what he wanted. They, in many cases, either paid with their liberty or paid with their lives. And so he began a war that he is finding himself quite bogged down in. And, and sadly, you're, you know, you're right, we have these students here, Ukrainian, Russian. I'm sure they and their families, none of them wanted this war. Mm -hmm. But they live in, particularly the Russians, live in countries where there's no avenue for protest without putting your life at risk. That's an interesting way of looking at this. You were a part of this Situation Room. Mm -hmm. And to a whole host of people here in America, when they hear the Situation Room, they start looking for Wolf Blitzer. Right? Exactly right. You know, I, I do a, I do a. I know you heard this I, one. Hey, I do a lecture, and I say to, I say, okay, when you hear Situation Room, how many people in this room think Wolf Blitzer? It's the first thing I say. <laughs> That's exactly right. But there's a real Situation Room. Help the listeners get a handle on what the Situation Room is, what it does, and why it's important. So the Situation Room. I used to tell the young men and women that would come to work for me there. I would say. Hey, your job is to provide the tools and the space and the information that the President of the United States and his National Security Council and senior advisors need in order to make the hardest decisions that anyone has to make in the world. And so that would encompass a number of services that we provided. We provided space. So many people, when they think of the Situation Room, they think of that famous photograph of the day of the takedown of Osama bin Laden. And you see everyone crowded around a little room and the President sitting over in the corner in on the a folding corner. chair. Yep. Uh, the, now, that know, was the Situation Room. Was that? That was one of the conference rooms in the Situation Room. The Situation Room actually has three conference rooms in the West Wing of the White House, and they, there are three more over in the uh, Eisenhower Executive Office Building. The one they were sitting in was the smallest, but the story there is that the day of the takedown and the days leading up to the takedown, there's a much larger conference room there called the John F. Kennedy Conference Room, and that's where the president normally hosts meetings, and he had actually hosted a meeting that day, and the meeting concluded. The Situation Room had set up in the small conference room, which was across a lobby from this JFK room, in essence, a monitoring post so that uh, some of the president's senior advisors could stay abreast of the takedown as it was happening. Mm -hmm. So the story, as I understand it, is, is as they were leaving a meeting, it was actually Joe Biden, the vice president then, who said to the president, oh, hey, Barack, you got to come over here and <laughs> check out this cool room where they're monitoring what's going on. And so they walk over and, you know, when the president walks anywhere, everybody goes with them. Mm -hmm. And so they all go in the room and they immediately take by what was going on, people started to sit down and it was like a game of musical chairs. There was suddenly no chair for the president. The uh, military general officer who was running the monitoring equipment, he jumps up, of course, and says, oh, Mr. President, please take my seat. And President Obama says, uh, oh, oh, hey, no, I think it's best if you stay in that seat and you keep monitoring what's going on. And the Situation Room scrambled to go get one of the extra folding chairs we had, and he, and he was generous enough to just sit in the corner for that event. But yeah, so the Situation Room, it's its space. You got three conference rooms where all these very important meetings, you know, decisions about going to war or not going to war or doing trade sanctions or, or are we going to have a nuclear treaty with Iran or not? All those hard decisions get made in these rooms. There's also a 24-7 watch operation, a watch center where intelligence analysts from all around the community, the intelligence community and other cabinet departments, they send people to work in the Situation Room on two to three year details. And this 24-7 operation, they monitor what's going on in the world. They have a general understanding about what the president's immediate priorities are on any given day. 
they're the ones who make that call at two o'clock in the morning to wake right. the president up when something horrible happens. So that famous picture, if everybody gathered in that room, it was a monitor we were looking at. Is that right? Where everybody was staring was a screen, a big television screen on the wall. Because you couldn't see that from the angle right. the picture was taken. Right. The, the, phot- the-, the photographer wasn't allowed to take a picture of that. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, the president's photographer, Pete Souza, got very good at knowing where he could and couldn't take photographs. He actually was perched up on a like a low credenza so he could kind of get a bird's eye view of the table over in the far corner. Yeah. He squeezed him his way forward to go up and get that photograph. That is amazing. Yeah. So you worked in that Obama situation room. Right. Was there for a couple of years. Uh, got to, you know, the president knew me by my first name. So, you, you know, you can't beat that with a stick. One of the great privileges of working in the White House is that you get to make a farewell call on the president when you're finished. And uh, I got to bring my wife and my daughters in. And there's no cooler feeling than when walking into the Oval Office with your family and having the president say, Larry, my main man, and come, come give me the big bro hug. They didn't have to pay me. That was uh, that was all they had to all they had to do to. No, that is to, really cool. So it was it was great, great privilege. Not a lot of people in the history of the United States ever get to work for the president in the White House. So when you do get to work there, you take every moment very seriously, and you consider yourself very lucky and very privileged. But we did have a lot of fun. There, were, uh, you got to bring folks in on West Wing tours. So I got to bring my mother. You know, my at that time eighty-something-year-old mother. I got to bring her to see the Oval Office and to see the Situation Room, and you know that's. Just just obviously a wonderful feeling. There's a lottery system for employees in the White House to get access to the president's box at the Kennedy Center. So I got to take my wife and go see the Book of Mormon at the Kennedy Center in the president's box. And everybody's looking to see who's that in the box. (laughs) (laughs) That's real cool. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. And then you just walk in halls where people going all the way back to John Adams uh, were walking. And, you know, you just think about some of the great historic moments that took place in that building. and, And now here you are walking on that same ground. Just amazing. Wow. Gives me chills. (laughs) What were some of the biggest events that occurred while you worked in the Situation Room? So probably the biggest event that happened was the uh, attack on the consulate in Benghazi. Oh, man, Um, I remember that. I was sitting in my office, and my uh, senior duty officer on the watch floor comes down and pokes his head in. Mr. Pfeiffer, we got something bad going on in Libya, and he relayed what had happened. And I said, okay, who have you informed? And they said, well, we called the National Security Advisor's office and the Homeland Security Advisor's office, so they're aware. But those individuals are actually sitting in a meeting in one of the conference rooms, and I don't know whether you'd want to interrupt. I said, oh, yeah, this is definitely something I want to interrupt. So, you know, you go knock on the door and pop the door open and Dennis McDonough, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor, John Brennan, who was the Homeland Security Advisor, they both give me that look like, what are you doing interrupting my meeting? And I called them both out and told them what was happening. You know, there was an attack underway and we didn't know where the ambassador was. He was there, but no one knew where he was. And that began a, a whirlwind of events that day where we were setting up meetings, setting up secure phone calls. We were reaching out to the intel community to get information, State Department to get information. The the watch operation runs 24-7. I stayed until about 9.30 at night when we thought everything had calmed down and maybe it would be resolved. I went home only to get woken up in the middle of the night with the bad news about the ambassador and unfortunately some of the folks that came over to try to rescue him and and the rest of the crew. So that was a pretty dramatic event. One other function of the Situation Room is we can create space for, in essence, like a task force or tiger team to be set up and run. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
uh, we had a part of the Situation Room set aside for probably the next three weeks with members of the National Security Council staff working together to try to ensure that the safety and security at all embassies and consulates around the world was appropriate. And so we hosted that from an IT perspective and, and from an information support perspective. And then the other big, big event that probably took place, well, we had the Boston Marathon bombing that happened during my oh, time yeah. there. And then uh, Hurricane Sandy or Tropical Storm Sandy, whatever, I can't remember if it... It's the one that hit New Jersey, The right? one that hit New Jersey in New York. We actually thought it was going to hit D.C., so we actually had a team on board, and we had the relief team come in early, and we had set up cots in some basement spaces where people were going to be able to sleep if they needed to, but the storm ended up skirting by D.C. We lucked out, but people think of the Situation Room, and they mainly think of national security issues, but being the only 24-7 operation, we also would worry about domestic issues like big storms, tornadoes, the Aurora, Colorado shoot-up in the theater mm-hmm. that took place also happened when I was there. So we're constantly interfacing with other elements of the government to make sure the president's getting all the up-to-date information he needs to do his job. Wow, that is amazing. I didn't realize the burden I was bearing until I finished the job, and I took a couple weeks off, and I think the first two or three days, I slept almost the whole time. I went to bed, and my wife couldn't get me up. I could just kind of relax, you know, right. after. No, I hear you. Yeah, but it was so, a great so, job. So now, you were chief of staff to Michael Hayden, mm-hmm. right? when he was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. CIA. Mm-hmm. And Michael Hayden's also a professor here at Mason and teaches. I went to work for him uh, after retiring at a company called the Chertoff Group, a consultant firm. That's that a, is that Michael Chertoff? Yep, was yep. He, the, yeah. His, uh, he was the founder, and General Hayden's one of the principals of that firm. And then, lo and behold, uh, within the year, the school here asked if he'd be interested in having a center set up with his name on it, and General Hayden was intrigued by the idea and said, sure, and said, as long as I don't have to run it. And then he called me up. As I joke, I said, once a chief of staff, always a chief of staff. <laughs> there and it so is. Uh, he called me up and quite honored to come on board. And the first year we said, all right, the first academic year, let's both just kind of take it easy, take a nice, easy approach to it, see if we like doing this. End of the year, we looked at each other and said, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Let's keep doing it. And so we've built up our program over time since the 2017-18 academic year. Sadly, the pandemic kind of shoved us in a box with doing everything virtually. We took advantage of the virtual platform, though, to do a lot more events. So we've been keeping quite busy with that. But we are starting to get excited about doing some in-person stuff again. Oh, man, that's I can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, the, so, the, the in-person events, great about them is we usually have a nice networking opportunity when the event is over with some free drinks and free food. And it's a great chance for the students to, I mean, not only, do, as you said before, do they get to sit at the feet and listen to these people. Well, during that networking opportunity, they get a chance to go up and actually introduce themselves and ask questions and have those fantastic. individual conversations. Fantastic. So I, I really want to get into Russia, at mm-hmm. least some of the time that we have remaining. Given that a substantial group of our audience of students, I'm going to start kind of wide and then hone in, right? Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about what is Russia, in, in your opinion, what are they actually trying to do? Are they really trying to rebuild the old Soviet Union? What is their actual goal? So the Russian experts that I know well and I follow closely tell me that there's a number of forces at play. Number one, Vladimir Putin has perhaps developed a bit of a messianic complex about his role in history and that he is not getting any younger. There are rumors that he may not be healthy. And so he may be seeing this as his only window of opportunity to do something truly historic that would mark him as amongst the greatest Russian leaders ever. So there's that. And what does he do to do that? Well, he will re-expand the Russian empire. 
you know, forget whether you want to call it Soviet. It's just a Russian empire, number one. Number two, he is someone who has lived in fear of the expanse of democracy into Eastern Europe over the last 30 years. He has seen democracy flourishing in countries on his border, countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. or part of the Russian Empire. And he knows that if those democratic values and ideals begin to be embraced by the people of Russia, that he and the oligarchs who surround him and keep him in power are going to be very quickly swept out and potentially could lose their lives. So part of it is a pure power thing for him. I think he also sees weakness, perceived weakness in the West. He perceived division in our country. He perceived a view in America of being tired of war and wanting to disentangle ourselves from places overseas after the situations that we've dealt with in Iraq and Afghanistan. He saw, you know, and a little bit of an isolationist trend in, in some parts of our body politic. Of course. Um, In Europe, I think he saw Germany on the heels of an election being perhaps in a little bit of disorder and thinking they'd be unwilling or unable to organize themselves to resist. France is getting ready to approach an election as well. Mm -hmm. And he did everything he could to encourage the exit by the United Kingdom from the EU. And so, you know, you have, I, I I think he believed he had weakened the EU by removing Great Britain from that equation. It's interesting to look, but if you look at that map, I always envisioned that Ukraine strengthens their access to water, to Mm -hmm. the Black Sea, right? Russia doesn't have many entry points to water, and Ukraine represents a significant portion of that. Well, and they they took the Crimea for for that particular access point back in 2014. But there has been some thinking that at one point, some people thought perhaps the objective here was to create independent states out of those two Russian-speaking regions regions in the eastern part of Ukraine, but also create a full land bridge to Crimea, that that may be a geopolitical goal of his as well. Belarus is already Russia-leaning, at least, right? Mm -hmm. But Poland, Romania, Moldova, Mm -hmm. to put all of that back together, it just seems to me that it would be a difficult task given where uh, Russia is. So you have to ask yourself, what's the real end game here? Well, I think he also underestimated the resolve that some of those countries would have to want to remain free countries. And maybe he overestimated the ability of his corruptive forces through money and other intimidation to cow those countries into submission. Right. You know, interesting thing about freedom, isn't it? Yeah. Once you get a taste of it, you don't want to go back the opposite direction. You know, honestly, (laughs) I think we here in America probably are a little surprised surprised at how strong the resistance by Ukraine has been. It's been remarkable. It's been inspirational, frankly. And what does that do for the other countries? If you were thinking about doing this, you've got to then sit back if you're Russian and say, okay, this is probably going to be a lot harder than what we thought going yeah. forward, right? Well, he, and then, and then we, you run right into, Ukraine was a buffer. And so without Ukraine, you run right into the NATO states, which would really be a problem, right? Well, I think Vladimir Putin 
assumed his military was going to be able to very quickly topple Ukraine. When he attacked, he knew that would unify Europe and America to an extent. I think he underestimated how well it unified, uh, number one. Number two, I think he thought he could topple that country very quickly, and then it would just be a matter of months before that European-American alliance resolve would weaken, and he would then be able to start working with some of the countries, start selling his oil, his gas. And just like he did with Crimea, people would, although not formally recognize what happened, just kind of accept it. I think his army either sorely disappointed him, or I'm beginning to wonder if some elements of the army are actually undermining him, that this is a war they didn't want. And so as a result, he was not able to topple that country at all, no less as quickly as he wanted. At least not yet. Well, now he's in a position where in order to win this war, he's going to have to obliterate this country, which I think was not his initial goal, because you go in and you obliterate a country, the resolve of the alliance is not going to dissipate as quickly. We sit here and watch this night after night on television. It's actually working against his initial purpose. And not only that, the people who are witnessing the atrocities and living through them in the Ukraine will grow up to hate Russia, at least in that first generation. Well, and it creates a situation where if his thinking was topple the government, put in a puppet government, and then leave in a few months, and then this new puppet government would kowtow to his whims, he's now in a situation where he puts a puppet government in and tries to leave. The Ukrainian people are so enraged, they'll overthrow that puppet government. So now, does that mean Russia then has to commit forces to actually occupy Ukraine for a long period of time? Well, the last time they tried to occupy a country for a long period of time, it was Afghanistan, and that did not go so well. I think the same thing would happen here. And it will probably be worse. Yeah, I think so. That is a great refresher. So the Ukraine situation kind of highlights our country's significant conflicts with Russia. But it seems like we're having these conflicts all over. You got them with Russia. The Russia-China alliance is something that I find to be very, very interesting. I would love to get your comments there. And then you have the whole conflicts in the Middle East. And there is even some challenge and animosity in Central and South America relative to the U.S. as well. So with regard to China, despite what's happening with Russia today and how Russia's actions are potentially dramatically changing our approach to Europe and our approach to Russia in the in the near term, the long-term challenge, geopolitical, economic, technological, is with China. China has resources in terms of people, in terms of money. They've had great success economically, and that presents challenges for us as we go around the world trying to persuade countries to be more like us when China is going around saying, no, be more like us because, hey, we're not as messy as things are in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little more authoritarian. You got to give up some freedoms. But boy, look at all the money we're making and we're all doing great. And you get to stay in power. So be like us. So it presents a lot of challenges. And it's really the 800 pound gorilla in American foreign policy, national security. And this Ukraine situation with Russia, to some extent, is a bit distracting from our greater concern there. Right. And Uh, so now with regard, I'm sorry, you you did ask about Russia and China. So Russia and China have come up with a union of convenience against America. They both are interested in ensuring that... There you go. That's what I was getting to. Yeah, they they both are interested in ensuring that America remains divided, that America appears weak, and that America does not appear to be the model of virtue to the rest of the world, and therefore democracy will not flourish. It will actually in many cases be overthrown, and they can then operate more freely within their own country and in, in, in other countries. That being said, China's also smart. They make a lot of stuff that they sell all around the world, and they don't want to be on the wrong
wrong side of history either. So although they have made statements that are supportive of Russia in the current conflict, they're trying to have both sides at the moment. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and whether China ultimately decides that they can't be on the side of Russia in terms of violating the integrity of another nation state. So I think it's a space worth continuing to watch. It's a union of convenience. I think the Chinese look at Russia as kind of a junior partner in the relationship. And so if they begin to get fed up with what Russia is doing, they may either try to insist Russia does things differently or may walk away from Russia. Russia is isolating themselves from the rest of the world, number one. So they may see China as somebody they need to stay close with. But at the same time, there's nothing that irritates a Russian more than appearing to be a junior partner to the Chinese. There's a lot of historical no, uh, tensions in the Far East as well between those countries. I don't think they're having a kumbaya moment between the countries. I think it's really a uh, relationship of convenience at the moment. Do you think that China's goal in all of this is to say, yeah, let's do what we can to keep them occupied with Russia <laughs> well, so that know, we can continue doing whatever it is we want to do and be able to strengthen ourselves and develop over that time? I mean, the reality is, is that during most of the time of the Trump administration, Russia was rebuilding, strengthening mm -hmm. this army that they're <laughs> going after <laughs> Ukraine with, right? And developing uh, new missile technologies and weapons technologies and the like to basically counter the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so China could be doing a similar kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. China, I'm sure, looks at the great distraction that is occurring in Europe as something that allows them space to continue to operate with a certain amount of greater freedom in developing things the way they want to develop them. Absolutely. It's taken attention away from how poorly they handled COVID in the beginning of the pandemic as well. You don't hear a lot of people talking about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yes, I think it is definitely in their interest. And it also... We're not, talking, we're not talking... When is the last time you heard the Uyghurs? Yeah, well, so yeah exactly. I mean, you heard a little bit about it at the beginning of the Olympics. I mean, but not, not much. But the other thing we have to worry about is if Russia is successful in expanding their empire into parts of our all of Ukraine, and then perhaps has sites on other Russian-speaking Russian ethnic areas of, the, of Eastern Europe, it could embolden China to pursue a goal that they clearly have, which is reunifying Taiwan into greater China. Could they perhaps see opportunities down the pike for invading and taking Taiwan as they see Russia going into Ukraine? I'm hoping the lessons they're learning is that it's not necessarily a good idea, but we'll see. Amazing. Amazing. There's many other challenges around the world. Iran is still an incredible malefactor in the Middle East. They foment violence against America in several locations. They sponsor terrorist organizations in several states in the region. But it looks like now we need that Iranian oil to get back on the market as a counterbalance to Russia. So yeah, that, that is interesting how international politics can work sometimes, where uh, we, meaning the Western world, needs to find alternative sources of energy to the cheap oil that Russia has been selling everybody. Unfortunately, the places that you get that oil from are places like Iran and Venezuela. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yes. Well, how does the Ukraine conflict tap into the broader concerns about Russia as a bad actor? You mentioned earlier that they're not coming out on the world stage too well. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You're talking the Russians aren't coming out? Yeah, the Russians are not. The Russians militarily are not performing very well. I think that is teaching a lot of lessons to us about how well equipped, how well logistic, if that's a verb, um, you know, well-supplied. What kind of discipline do they have in the ranks? What kind of professional experience do they have? You know, you one 
thing I think is becoming clear is a modern army perhaps really can't rely on a largely conscripted base of soldiers. By drafting people, you're tending to draft people that perhaps aren't as well educated. They're drafting heavily from regions of the country that are impoverished. And so they're bringing in people drafted for a short period of time. So you're not building up the professional expertise in the military that a modern army requires given the technological demands that are put on modern armies. So we may be learning a lot of lessons about the Russian army and how potent they are or are not. Now, the scary thing is they've got a great nuclear weapon force, as far as we know. That's what makes this whole Ukrainian invasion so difficult, is the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons. If they did not have nuclear weapons, we'd be fighting this in a whole different way. I mean, we'd And be, there'd be a no-fly zone and yeah, they, everything. Exactly. exactly. And right. there'd be no-fly zones. There are more troops on the ground. European troops might have deployed. Uh, it'd be a very different, very different thing. I think Ukraine has, as I mentioned before, is proving to be an incredible example of democratic resolve. And I think that needs to be encouraged. And hopefully that's inspiring people around the world to stand up for their values and their rights. I think Europe realizes that, you know, maybe they haven't been spending enough on their defense the last couple decades, and they need to consider spending a little bit more money to shore up their defenses in order to deter Russia from any more adventurism. So you talked about the nuclear deterrent. The other deterrent that I've heard mentioned in the early days of the Russian invasion into Ukraine was cyber, was that if we got involved in any way that Russia would unleash this massive cyber infrastructure against the West, primarily U.S., U.S. companies and the like. So far, that has not materialized. And so why not? Was that more bluster than reality? Uh, Did they just try and just fail? And so you don't hear anything about it? can, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think most of my colleagues are surprised that we've not seen greater use of a cyber weapon by the Russians, either in Ukraine, across Europe, or against the United States. So I I think we all agree they've got the capability and the capacity. So why are they holding back? Do they believe by holding back they're deterring us by having that threat still over our head? I'm not sure. Could we be having some successes that we're not hearing about from our own government? I think that's very possible. The National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command have developed incredibly robust tools and capabilities over the last 20 years that I would not want to be on the receiving end of. Maybe their knowledge of what we have the capability to do is actually deterring them from taking that action. There was some discussion I heard today on the news where I guess there's some intelligence that's been obtained that the Russians have said very clearly that they want to avoid engaging U.S. forces militarily anywhere in this conflict. Well, maybe that is extended to cyber. Maybe they realize that if they engage us with cyber that will come back at them and hurt them more than they would necessarily hurt us. This is really, really interesting. But I've got to tell you, we're a very vulnerable nation cyber-wise. We've not spent enough money in this country buttressing our critical infrastructure. There are elements that have gotten better defenses than others. I think our financial sector is in better shape. But you look at our electrical power, our water in particular, our transportation grids, they're pretty darn vulnerable to cyber attack, and, and I think we definitely need to worry about that. Do you think that what made Russia believe that they can pull all of this off, could go back even to what happened this past January 6th. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. That they saw this and they said, you know, the U.S. is 
not as unified as they pretend to be. And Right, exactly. I think that contributed to their calculus to make the move now. Their calculus that the West was weak, was distracted, was focused inward. You combine that with the way we have evacuated from Afghanistan. You know, so from a military perspective, I think they saw us as being weak and that there wasn't much resolve in our country to engage overseas. But yes, January 6th, I'm sure they saw that as contributing to our weakness. You know, and, I, and I would say, I, I mean, I, sadly, I think we are still a bit divided. You saw that in the initial reactions to what Putin was up to, where you saw politicians and prominent broadcasters making statements like, hey, you know, Putin is a genius and what a smart move. And hey, why should I care about what's going on over there? That's Ukraine. That's Russia's backyard. That's their headache. That's Europe's headache. My answer to that is I would have thought the 20th century would have taught us one lesson, and that is the U.S. is in a better position if we don't ignore what's going on in Europe or <laughs> around the world. We need to be over there helping to ensure that things develop in a way that benefits our values and our system. Well, the reality is, for those who thought that this didn't affect us, just look at the price of oil right now. Yes, That's yes. affecting everybody, right? Absolutely. And ultimately, it may not affect our personal freedom, right? We're not being invaded but it affects our way of life. Absolutely, and I think it will continue to. The government is going to make every effort to try to find additional oil resources, try to, again, encourage a shift towards greener energy. But in the short term, yes, Americans are going to have to suffer and sacrifice. And so it's incumbent on this government, the Biden administration, to explain really well to the average American why we should care about this and why it matters. Well, look, this has been a fascinating conversation. (laughs) And I really appreciate you giving us some time and engaging with us. I would just offer to the folks listening that if you're interested in the Hayden Center, if you just go online, search Hayden Center, George Mason University, you can find our website. We're also on social media. We've got a very active Twitter account that kind of focuses in on intelligence and national security related issues. We're active on Facebook, a little bit on LinkedIn, and we have a YouTube channel. If people would love to see the events we've put on over the last four years or so, just search Hayden Center in YouTube and you can find all our events and they all run about 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15. Some really interesting stuff there. Really, and, really uh, interesting stuff. Um, yeah, appreciate. I know you've, you know, I frequent it. Uh, you've attended them uh, on occasion. And yeah. so we really appreciate that. And oh, without question. And yeah, we do look forward to hopefully getting some in-person events happening in the spring here and we can get folks back networking and talking and engaging in person too. Well, I don't I, think, I don't think we'll give up on the virtuals entirely though, because we've built up a great worldwide audience. We routinely bring in people to these events from just about every continent. No, then that's great. And I, and I want you to continue that. But your first in-person one, please let me know. I want to be there. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank my guest, Larry Pfeiffer, Executive Director of Mason's Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence, Policy, and International Security, which is part of Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, continue to stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.